Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thoughts, enhance your mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, I have the privilege of having as our guest here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, one of the world's foremost pioneers in research in the area of psychedelic medicine, Dr. Stan Groff. As many of you know, the United States has suppressed research into the field of psychedelic medicine for over 50 years. I've talked about the original suppression going back to 1935 with Harry Anslinger, some of you may recall, that Harry Anslinger was the first chief of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He was appointed to that post by his uncle by marriage, Andrew Mellon, who was Secretary of the Treasury of the United States at the time. Harry Anslinger was married to Andrew Mellon's niece. Harry Anslinger was an ardent racist. He, uh, he was outraged about what he believed was a conspiracy by black people in this country to give marijuana to white women and then have sex with them. And Harry went on a rampage, uh, including including hounding the jazz singer Billie Holiday to the extent that when she was hospitalized in Bellevue Hospital in Manhattan, New York City, Harry had her handcuffed to her bed uh, and she died in her hospital bed uh, there in, uh, in Bellevue. Uh, Harry continued on his rampage, uh, and he went to the United Nations eventually as a representative of the United States, and he managed to get the, almost the entire world to both illegal, make illegal uh, various uh, medicines, that which they refer to, quote, as drugs, they tried to differentiate what the pharmaceutical companies were producing from these other uh, medicines, and they took the licensing privileges, Harry managed to take the licensing privileges away from medical doctors in this country. Before Harry Anslinger, medical doctors in the United States were able to prescribe heroin and cocaine, marijuana, and various other uh, of these substances that were used as medicines, and the medical doctors had the whole area under good control. Once Harry had these substances made illegal, the only people who were able to provide these substances, heroin, cocaine, marijuana, etc., the only people who were able to provide them and who then had the monopoly on providing them were the criminal gangs. And so what we saw was the advent of the criminal cartels who provide uh, the various substances. This is very similar to what happened in the United States with prohibition. Uh, we we uh, prohibited the sale of alcohol, and gave the total monopoly of providing alcohol to the gangsters. And we then, from that, the mafia 
gained millions, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, and became a worldwide criminal enterprise. The exact same thing happened with Harry's onslaught into the uh, substances that were used for medicines. He got them to ma be made illegal. Only the criminal cartels could provide them, and we spawned a worldwide criminal cartel uh, in the drug, what's called the drug industry. As a result of Harry's racism, 65 years later, it's actually 1935, 65 and 15, it's 80 years later, the jails in the United States are full of people of color, black people and uh, uh, Mexican people, and to a lesser extent, uh, Chinese people, who Harry was after as well for their use of opium in the Bay Area and in California. So he was tremendously successful, and we're still feeling the result. One of the offshoots of Harry's work is that other substances were also made illegal, not ones that Harry was particularly interested in the time, but they got caught up. And that were the substances that are referred to as psychedelic substances and psychedelic medicines. Prior to LSD being made illegal in the mid-60s, it was being used around the world, uh, and there was research going on. Quite a bit of research was going on that you'll hear about from Dr. Stan Groff today in England, where it was being used for uh, treatment of alcoholism. So that's the background for today's interview. The scientist that we have with us today is Dr. Stan Groff. He has received many prestigious awards, including the Vision 97 Award granted by the Foundation of Dagmar and Vaclav Havel in Prague. Stan is one of the founders and chief theoreticians of transpersonal psychology, which has moved across the United States and around the world. He's re received honorary rewards for his major contributions to and development of the field, not only of transpersonal psychology, but the Association of uh, Transpersonal Psychology. He's also the founding president of the International Transpersonal Association, and he was his president for many years. You will hear today, I'm not going to take up his uh, thunder by just going into it now, but when LSD was made illegal, he was a pioneer in looking for other ways to achieve altered states of consciousness. You're going to hear about that today uh, regarding his holotropic breathwork. Currently, Dr. Groff is professor of psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies in the, in the Bay Area. He's in the Department of Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness in San Francisco and at the Wisdom University in Oakland, California. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Dan. Are you there? Well, we seem to be having a technical issue here, Michael. We dropped the caller. Well, let's see if we can get him back. And while we are uh, attempting to get him back, I'm going to give you uh, um, some more information about Stan Groff. Some of his books include Realms of the Human Unconscious, Observations from LSD Research, which he did back in 1975. He published another one called LSD Psychotherapy in 1980. He published another one called Beyond Death, The Gates of Consciousness in 1981. 
The Adventure of Self-Discovery, Dimensions of Consciousness, and New Perspectives in Psychotherapy in 1988. Getting a uh, signal there, Michael. So let's see what we're... uh, We're having a little technical difficulty, and uh, so I'm going to give you some more background, but I'm not going to keep reading, because if I keep reading all the books that he's written, it'll take up the entire interview. Uh, Stan, if you can hear me there, uh, hang up your phone, because uh, Michael is trying to get through, and your line is busy, you're probably holding on, Um, so please do that, and Michael's going to try and call through. Um... Stan has been a a leader in the field, if not the leader in the field of LSD research, because he was fortunate enough to be able to do research in LSD while it was still legal. And he was able to conduct what I think we're going to hear are thousands of LSD sessions. Certainly they were in the hundreds, but I think they may have been in the thousands. And so he has the hands-on experience of being with people as they took various dosages of LSD uh, back before. I said it was made illegal in the, in the mid-60s. Um, having him here today is, is a major honor. Uh, I happen to have been at a, uh, uh, a seminar that he gave just the other night in San Francisco along with Rick Doblin, who's the founder of MAPS, Some of you may remember that I've had Rick Doblin on several times, and we're going to have him on again. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. I suggest you go to that website. You can just Google MAPS, M-A-P-S, and you'll get right to it. Uh, MAPS is the leading um, research organization, perhaps on the planet, into psychedelic medicines. Stan, are you with me now? Yes, I'm here. Okay, great. I've just been giving an introduction uh, about your distinguished career, and now we can move uh, into the uh, into the interview. Uh, yes, let's. Thank uh, you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Oh, it's it's it is my honor and pleasure, sir. Um, I'd like to start out with uh, how I know, I know you started out as a psychiatrist and you were doing Freudian work that you were trained. I I heard you say the other night that you were in psychoanalysis yourself for seven years, but then something happened uh, that brought you into the field of research with uh, LSD. Well, give us a little background on that, and then we're going to... Here's what we're going to do, Stan. We're going to ask you to give a little background on how you got into LSD, how you came to this country, then we're going to talk some about your research in Maryland when you first got here, about the illegalization, and then we're going to go from the illegalization to how you developed alternates, the holotropic therapy, spiritual emergency network, and then we'll talk about the present research that's finally being done here in the future of LSD. So with that as as our outline, tell us how you came to to LSD from being a Freudian uh, uh, analyst. Yeah, well, I was born in Prague, Czechoslovakia. Originally, I wanted to go to animated movies. And then uh, just before I made the final commitment, I read uh, Freud's introductory lecture to psychoanalysis. And I got very excited. And within a week, I decided uh, I will not go into animated movies. I will study medicine to become a psychiatrist. And uh, as I was getting uh, deeper into psychoanalysis, I was getting really disappointed 
at first not with the theory but the practice you know how long it takes how much money how much how much energy and uh, seeing that the results were not exactly breathtaking and so i just started uh, nostalgically <laughs> focusing back on the on the animated movies that would have been better career <laughs> and then uh, the psychiatric department where i was working got a uh, supply from LSD, from uh, Sandoz Pharmaceutical Companies in Switzerland, and it came with a letter describing the serendipitous uh, discovery of the psychedelic effects by Albert Hoffman, that actually intoxicated himself uh, accidentally when he was uh, producing it. It was supposed to be, you know, one of the substances used in gynecology and for relief of um, migraine headaches, which was the main uh, effect of the ergot alkaloids. So this was a very, very unexpected kind of a, a fringe benefit from this from this research. Uh, just to and put that in perspective, excuse me for interrupting, to put that in perspective, uh, Albert's serendipitous discovery was in 1943? Yes. Thank you. So that yes. tells our listeners... You know, he initially synthesized it in 1938. Yes. He sent it to the pharmacologist and it came back not a particularly interesting substance that the research should be discontinued. And uh, those of us who knew him heard frequently the story that he somehow, uh, when he was producing further derivatives of ergot, uh, you know, or the lysergic acid, that he couldn't get this particular substance off his mind for completely irrational reasons, that he felt that they must have overlooked something. And so 1943, he... Uh, decided to synthesize another sample, and this is where the intoxication happened. Yes, the famous bicycle ride. So he sent some of this, Sandoz sent this around the world. You were one of the places that it was sent to. You received the package, and what happens? Well, in the letter, Sandoz suggested on the basis of the pilot studies, which were done in, in Zurich, uh, that LSD could be used uh, for inducing experimental psychosis, and, you know, we would have a model that we can study. And then there was another um, suggestion that they felt that maybe this could be used as a kind of unconventional educational tool, that psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses, students would have the chance to spend a few hours in a world that seemed to be like uh, the world of some of their patients and, you know, be able to understand them better, to be able to communicate with them more effectively and hopefully be more successful in treating them, which was kind of sorely needed at the time. So the therapist would have an experiential understanding of the psychosis of their patients by going into that realm for a limited number of hours. Yes, that was the idea. Okay. And I got, I was at, the point, at that point, I was quite disappointed with psychoanalysis and this seemed like a you know new possibility so I got very excited and became one of the early volunteers in Prague and I had an experience that you know within a day transformed me professionally and uh, and personally I heard you say the other night at the uh, Bentley Reserve uh, presentation that beautiful presentation that you made by the way that that one that initial experience you started out as one person and by the after at the end of the day, you were a different person. You l used language. Am I correct? Almost like yes, that. Yes. Tell us about that. I mean, about what that was like for you, because I'm sure that that uh, listeners want to hear about what does this mean that you can take a substance 
start out as Stan Groff and at the end of the experience be a somewhat different Stan Groff? Well, I was uh, I was brought up in a family where there was no uh, religious affiliation. Um, my parents didn't commit me or my brother to any religion. They felt that we should make our own uh, choice when we come of age. And so I have very you know very materialistic worldview. And from from this kind of family upbringing, I would go into the medical school which certainly doesn't cultivate mystical awareness. And uh, I was studying medicine at the time when we were controlled by the Soviet Union. We had a very uh, strong, you know, materialistic uh, education. And uh, within those few hours in this experience, I just uh, basically became, uh, you know, somebody with a spiritual, with a mystical, with a mystical worldview. A completely, completely uh, transformed perspective on uh, on life, and also uh, interest. You know, so I shifted from the interest in psychoanalysis into this uh, fascination by these non-ordinary states of consciousness. What? And this has been now, you know, over half a century, and this became my, I would say, uh, profession, vocation, passion. I have done very little in this half century that followed that would not be related in one way or another to these, uh, to these special states of consciousness. Talk to us some more, please, Stan, about this transition. What does it mean when you're to be a materialist, and then what does it mean to you to be more spiritual or mystical? What, what is Elaborate on that. Concept. Well, the initial idea, the initial worldview was this is basically... A material universe that, in a sense, uh, created itself without any uh, guiding uh, intelligence, and uh, you know there was no place for spirituality. I mean, if we believe that this is a universe uh, that uh, is the universe of matter, and then that uh, life, consciousness, and intelligence were kind of uh, latecomers, you know, after billions of years of. Uh, of uh, the development of matter, and that in a sense they are side products, they are epiphenomena of material processes, then of course there's no place for anything spiritual. What is spirit? You know, haven't you done your <laughs> your uh, study? Haven't you studied uh, and discovered what materialistic science discovered about the, the universe? And um, so suddenly, uh, this was a completely different uh, different perspective that uh, the the universe was permeated by superior intelligence. That uh, consciousness was uh, a fundamental aspect of the universe, not a product of the human uh, human brain. So this was a very radical uh, radical transformation. Are you are you putting forth that there is a consciousness? that is floating through the universe, Does, that exists some kind of perhaps Mobius trip of consciousness or some a consciousness that is always around us? How do you conceptualize this spiritual consciousness that is separate well, the from the... Well, consciousness for us is like what water is for fish, you know. It's a, it's a very fundamental aspect of our our existence. So if I if I should somehow find a... Uh, already existing conceptual framework for what I have experienced and what I have seen over the years in others, I would have to go to the great spiritual philosophies of the East, uh, 
Uh-huh. Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, you know, those were cultures that were involved in systematic exploration of, uh, of consciousness, uh, you know, with the same kind of um, focus and enthusiasm that we are uh, studying the material world. Yes. They were not particularly interested in de- developing technologies and so on, but they, their focus was on consciousness and, and their understanding of the human psyche and consciousness uh, is, was way, way um, beyond what we have now in the materialistic science in the West. Well, I'm beginning to understand now what you mean by being transformed to today, because starting out with a materialistic framework, which has political implications for how we live our lives in terms of the importance of material things and acquisition of material things and living in a culture and creating material things as the goal is, is, is light years away from a conceptual framework where spiritual and, and consciousness is, is paramount. And so, therefore, the value system that would come out of that would be much more aligned with feelings and people in terms of their nature and, and, and as well as connecting with nature rather than connecting with things. Is that correct? Yes. You know, I should have said also that now we have, in, in the most advanced uh, developments in Western science, we are now uh, actually uh, converging in the new worldview with this uh, spiritual worldview of this ancient uh, system, particularly Far Eastern systems. Uh, there are, you know, repeated um, reports now from quantum relativistic physics that come to the same conclusion that consciousness is somehow um, fundamentally involved in the creation of the experience of the material world itself. Yes. So, so that's, uh, that's the, the new science is really converging with, uh, with mysticism. But uh, what we were experiencing and finding in uh, our research was fundamentally incompatible with what Fritjof Capra called the uh, Cartesian-Newtonian worldview, basically the 17th century uh, perspective. Of the, the dualism that he put forth, that he brought us to for, for hundreds of years. Your, the, this theory is, I mean, obviously a much more unified theory. In fact, it's just to call it unified is mistaken because everything is everything. It's all part of of, the, of one big everything. It can't be separated into parts as if they're different in in, in another in another uh, consciousness. Correct? Yes. You know, after this kind of worldview emerged, that were. Um uh, precedents were found. For example, there is a system uh, called Avatamsaka Buddhism or Hawaiian Buddhism in, in China, which was this idea of mutual interpenetration. Um, it's a very, very complex, very interesting uh, philosophy, but uh, it can be described by a story uh, which is, uh, describes an um, empress who wanted to understand this very complicated uh, Philosophy, and she went to a sage uh, called Fatsang and uh, wanted uh, him to explain the principles of this philosophy. And he took her to a gigantic hall, uh, which was all covered, all the walls and ceiling and floor covered with mirrors. And he lit a candle in the middle of this uh, room, and suddenly there were millions of candles all around. And this is, this is how one is... Uh, 
uh, contained in the many. And then he reached into his pocket and took out a crystal. And now all these millions of candles were sort of collected. And this is, this is how many are in the, in the one. Uh, so this the holographic concept that we have today, you know, and the uh, other concepts coming from uh, quantum physics are really pointing to this kind of uh, understanding of the universe. Very different from the kind of Newtonian uh, clockwork. Yes. Actually, as you were speaking, I was thinking, reminded of the work of Rupert Sheldrake with, with the, uh, you know, with, with the, uh, the birds who... Uh, immediately start in, on the continent started doing exactly what the birds in England were doing at the exact same time almost as if they have somehow yeah. were, were totally connected well uh, you see you see it in a smaller scale I mean if you observe a flock of birds for example gigantic flock and they are moving as if they were one organism yes. one consciousness the school of fish yes and there is an amazing uh, video which is called the giant anthill when they port uh, cement into uh, an anthill and and then remove the soil and you can see the incredible uh, architecture and you imagine that this was created by individual ants who <laughs> just sort of crawling through a dark hole totally separated physically from the other ants and at the same time created this amazing collective uh, uh, you know architecture that's a beautiful uh, description uh, for teaching that you used of the birds or the fish in, in great numbers moving as if they're one organism. And as you were saying that, I was trying to get a picture of what the, our planet might look like from a distance and how people might see whether or not we, human beings, are moving on this planet as if we are one or do we move as if we are you know, separate groups or entities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very, very good so then after you had this transformation uh, sometime after that uh, you you moved to the united states yes well i uh, i had my first uh, psychedelic session in 56 and i had 11 years i, I moved to the united states in 67 so i had uh, 11 years of work in uh, the psychiatric research institute in prague and during that time, were you able to do LSD research during those 11 years? Yes, yes. We were doing something that we call, uh, at the time, psycholytic therapy, which was a large number of, uh, let's say, medium dosages of LSD, something that one of my patients called uh, onion peeling of the unconscious. We were able to go layer after layer and really map the unconscious, moving from the Freudian individual unconscious through the, what I call the perinatal unconscious related to the memory of birth, then into what Jung called the collective unconscious, both in its historical and, and, and mythological or archetypal, as he calls it, uh, aspect. So during that period, Stan, from 1956 to 1967, 11 years, approximately how many people who were treated uh, with, L with this low dosage LSD? Well, at that time, I set myself in uh, over 3,000 sessions. And now, you know, then uh, in the following years, it grew up. I, I've been personally involved in about 4,000 uh, 4, psychedelic sessions. 
And you're calling these were mostly low dose. What what is a low dose, please? Uh, no, they were medium. Medium. medium what was the what is a like, medium uh, dose? You know, up to maybe 200, 200 micrograms. Okay. What can you and tell? Once we once we go to two fifty, you know, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred, we would call it high dose sessions. <laughs> the American public has been, one might say, almost traumatized by the very word LSD as a result of the terrible negative publicity that came out of the 60s. But here we have someone, yourself, who has actual scientific research, three to 4,000 cases to tell us about. Is this a dangerous medicine? Are the side effects such that people are jumping, your patients were jumping out of windows? Were they, uh-huh. they had to well, be institutionalized? See, it's, it's a powerful tool. I think there was the, the perspectives uh, range from calling it a panacea and then a devil's drug. And uh, what, is, what is overlooked is that this is a tool. We had a discussion about it in one of the conferences, and Humphrey Osmond compared it to a knife. You know, is a knife a terribly dangerous tool or is it a useful instrument? And then you would have a discussion when one of the discussants would be uh, chief of uh, New York police who described the murders that were committed in the back lanes of New York City. And then you would have a surgeon general who would be saying, well, if you have a, the right kind of education and you can do amazing interventions, medical interventions with the knife. And then you would have a housewife who would be talking about cutting vegetables or salami. And you would have an artist who would be uh, talking about, uh, you know, wood carvings. And uh, it would be absolutely clear to us that we are not talking about uh, the knife. We are talking about various human uses. And psychedelics were used from, uh, you know, instruments of therapy to uh, they're also considered as, uh, as chemical warfare. You know, what would happen if you put it into people's uh, water supply, if you would use it in aerosols in the field, if you would uh, smuggle it somehow into the drinks of uh, diplomats and politicians and, you know, military leaders and so on. So those are all human uses, and and, uh, psychedelics are powerful openings of the openness of the the mind. So they can be used for all those different different purposes. So it's the question of uh, intention and set and setting, you know, who is doing it with whom, and for what kind of purpose? Three to four. We have so far, you know, in the industrial civilization, we have abused everything. We have abused biology, we have biological warfare, chemistry, we have chemical warfare, uh, nuclear uh, energy. So why would psychedelics be uh, uh, different? You know, we are, uh, we are incredibly developed in terms of the neocortex, the intellectual achievements, but we stayed stuck in uh, Stone Age with our emotions. So we are now using you know, nuclear weapons with the same kind of mentality with which uh, the Neanderthals were using a, you know, a stick. You know. Well, there, there, there is a reason that, the, that LSD has a, um, such a psychological effect on the public, and I believe that part of it is the fact that the medicine itself, and, and including your experience of starting out as one Stan Graf with a materialistic uh, framework for how the world works, 
and just within that same day, uh, achieving a state where uh, you now expanded it to a materialism plus spiritualism plus mysticism, which is a radical transformation, this could be seen, and I think it is seen by many, as a revolutionary medicine because it has the potential to change consciousness on a grand scale. Is that not accurate? Well, it's, you know, it has tremendous uh, potential individually for therapy, but also uh, it's associated with the transformation of a worldview and sort of bringing in the spiritual perspective. So if it could be applied on a large enough scale, it would change our, in my opinion, it would change our chances for survival Yes, and on the planet. I mean, if we continue the kind of, uh, you know, ignorant strategy, uh, which is uh, bringing in kind of a linear uh, focus into a system which is basically, uh, which is basically uh, circular, which is like um, plundering non-renewable fossil resources and turning them into pollution, which is the last thing we need as biological entities. You know, we need clean water, clean air, and clean soil where we grow our food. It's nothing more important, no political, ideological, religious, or other other concerns should be more important than protecting uh, life and creating sort of optimal um, optimal conditions for, for survival on the planet. Well, and we are violating this. We are, we are polluting the very environment that we depend on. And this can change. This can change through these uh, through these transformative experiences when people can work on uh, the traumas that they experience in childhood, in infancy, uh, the trauma of birth, the prenatal trauma, and if they open to the mystical, to the spiritual perspective, uh, recognizing our fundamental connection with other people, uh, the way we are embedded in nature, that we cannot uh, do anything to nature that wouldn't ricochet and and hurt us we have millions of people in the united states and i don't know how many around the world who are experimenting on their own with lsd we don't have uh reports from emergency rooms around the united states we uh, uh, we don't have reports from police departments around the united states uh, of incidents being created by uh, by uh, these uh, LSD, and these people are taking it on their own, as you well know, as we all well know. Uh, some of them have guides, some of them don't have guides. They're they're taking the substance has huge potential for for a transformation. Uh, also, as you pointed out, it has the potential to give one the experience of feeling like they're having a temporary, but you don't know it at the time that it's temporary, because now is now, and when you're having an experience feeling like you're in a psychosis, you don't really have any guarantee you're going to come out of it. Why are we not hearing more incidents over these decades since Leary and Alpert of emergency room incidents and police and people killing people? See, there was a there was a big study. Um, this was conducted by Sidney Cohen, one of the early pioneers. I remember him, yes. Psychoanalyst in uh, Los Angeles. And he um, wrote a review of the side effects and complications of LSD and mescaline sessions um, drawn from 25,000 administrations. And the uh, 
side effects uh, and and uh, you know negative after effects were minimal as long as it was done responsibly. We didn't know very much in the early years, but it was understood that if somebody has this powerful experience, there has to be somebody around, you know, who is in the usual state of consciousness to hold the kite string, so to say, and that you have to keep people overnight and talk with them in the morning before you send them home. And under those circumstances, the complications were minimal, ridiculous as compared to complications that we had with... uh, electroshocks or, or insulin comas where one <laughs> person mortality was an acceptable risk. Yes, or prefrontal uh, let lobotomy. Alone, let alone the, uh, you know, the lobotomy, which yes. was the, did you know that the lobotomy was, the prefrontal lobotomy was awarded by Nobel Prize at, at Germonis, you know, 1948, got a Nobel Prize for lobotomy, where you put a scalpel into the frontal lobe and cut off uh, you know the front lobe. Uh, I know because the the yes. original, the massive lobotomy, not the prefrontal, the refined uh, lobotomy. So, so these were these were you know procedures with incredible risk that were used in psychiatry as compared to to responsible use of psychedelics. Yes. Now, when people start using it in places like Woodstock, you know, where they were handing out all kinds of substances of unknown. Uh, origin and unknown dosages, handing it out with both hands. It's, it's a miracle that there were not less, that were not more uh, complications. At that, that time. Kind of, you know, it's, it's bad enough what happens with alcohol. Yeah. These are, psychedelics are powerful tools. I mean, you, you shouldn't sort of play with it, you know, in raves in some kind of open spaces where nobody is holding the space. For those of you who just uh, tuned in, uh, you're listening to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Our guest today is arguably the world's foremost scientist uh, uh, into uh, psychedelic uh, substances, Dr. Stan Groff. Um, we're talking about uh, LSD and his research. Uh, so you moved here in 1967, and very soon after you got here, I believe in Maryland, uh, LSD, uh, the, the, the substance that you were researching, became illegal. No, we were actually the, the only uh, project in the United States that survived. There were about 70 uh, projects, if I remember correctly, that were stopped. And the one that was uh, happening in the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, uh, Spring Grove in Baltimore, this was the only surviving uh, research project, and it then tapered off in the in the seventies. Aha! Uh-huh. So you were able to continue for a certain number of years. Yeah, I came in sixty-seven, and I stayed there until seventy-three. So I, I had a chance of uh, doing this, you know, government-sponsored, government-supported uh, research or NIMH. Uh, sponsored research for six years. And then did the government stop it, or did it trail off by itself? It just became so difficult to get the permission, you know, and the the publicity generated by the journalists and by the sort of um, ignorant anti-drug propaganda was so so great that the scientists didn't want to go through the the hassles that it took to, to get the permission. It was never really completely made completely illegal but the to get the permission was really really difficult so in 19 19- the, the yeah. so-called uh, 
uh, IND, the Investigational New Drug Number, uh, state as the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center into way into the 70s. So then in 1973, you moved to the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. Yes, you know, I was I was getting to the point where I had enormous number of uh, uh, cases. I had the protocols, the the research notes, and uh, it was becoming increasingly difficult to continue the research. And so I decided to take a year off uh, um, to write uh, a book. I got uh, invitations from several publishers because LSD was making headlines, and we were the only. Uh, official uh, research place, uh, so they asked me if I would write a, a book on LSD, and I took, uh, I, I had a contract with Viking Press, and uh, then I went to a party, and there was Michael uh, Murphy, who was the co-founder of Esalen, and he said, well, if you are writing a book, why don't you come to Esalen? Esalen is a great place, you know, we'll, be, we'll give you a house on the ocean, and uh, and you have food at Esalen, and uh, you'll be writing, you know, looking at the whales passing by and the, the, the monarch <laughs> butterflies, which I did. And then it turned out to be two years, and then uh, I decided to stay in California. I became so connected to, you know, to um, the, the spirit of California that I just uh, didn't want to return to, to Baltimore. I understand. John, Johns Hopkins and to... to the research, uh, psychedelic yes. research, was by that time was so com- compromised, you know, that uh, it just simply didn't seem worth it to return to, to the East Coast. I understand completely. I was teaching at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor when I first came out to Esalen in 1967 to study with Fritz Perls, and uh, that pretty much ended my academic career, and I moved to California soon thereafter as well. Um, from there, please give us, uh, you know, some background now about how you started to experiment with all, with other ways of altering consciousness and which led you into your, uh, holotropic therapy. Well, the, uh, there were two major areas. One was a development of what we call holotropic breathwork, Christina, my late wife and myself, we developed this at Esalen the instigation of uh, participants in the SLN workshops. You see, we were doing workshops where I was talking about um, our observations from uh, the study of non-ordinary states, and people were not very happy with us. They said, well, it's great to hear about all these wonderful experiences, but can't we do something? Can't we have experiences ourselves? Don't you have something on the side? And I said, I'm sorry, I don't have the permission to use <laughs> You know, use psychedelics at, at Esalen, uh-huh. and Esalen would not be very, you know, very happy if we do something illegal here. And so then we started building on some ex- observations from psychedelic research, uh, which were showing that uh, fast breathing can actually bring you in touch with uh, with um, unconscious material. And we started experimenting with music and um, and. Uh, the, uh, the breathing, the faster breathing, and then later developed also a certain form of body work that, uh, that made it possible to integrate these experiences better. And it sort of developed into an independent, very powerful method of self-exploration and, and healing. 
And I got very deeply involved in that because suddenly there was something that uh, um, seemed to be, you know, close in its power to to psychedelics, but at the same time did not have the the legal problems associated with it. You know, <laughs> we don't have speed limits for breathing uh, or uh, prohibitions to use music. So those were very very safe uh, um, methods you to, to induce states that still have great. Uh, uh, healing power, transformative power, um, I believe evolutionary uh, potential, and, and heuristic value, which means uh, that when you work with these states, you get a lot of revolutionary insights that uh, are changing uh, uh, the basic concepts in, in psychiatry and psychology. For those of you who want to uh, look further into holotropic breathing, it's H-O-L-O-T-R-O-P-I-C. You can look it up on Google, and you'll get plenty of information or read one of Should I have also a, a website, which is my full name, StanislavGrof.com, where people would come uh, find a lot of information. And then more specifically about holotropic breathwork is holotropic.com. Holotropic.com and StanislavGrof.com. So go to Stan's website or go to the holotropic.com website and you'll get more information. And so you developed the holotropic uh, breathwork and uh, and I know it started to spread and people started experimenting and using it around the the United States. And then you went on to uh, develop something else that I'd like you to talk about, please, called the Spiritual Emergency Network. Yes, that was the other area. So this this first one was the holotropic breathwork that we first did, uh, uh, just the two of us traveling all over the world and offering workshops. And uh, then we developed, in the late 80s, we developed uh, training for facilitators. So we have now trained over uh, 2,000 people you know, all over the world. So people can have these workshops in in different parts of the of the planet, and then uh, the the other important observation uh, from this kind of work was that uh, there are powerful spontaneous episodes of of these uh, states that I call call holotropic, which are the uh, non ordinary states of consciousness that have this healing and transformative power. So people have them spontaneously, and they are currently diagnosed as psychosis. People are put on uh, on tranquilizers and, and hospitalized and so on. Uh, and we found out that uh, there's a significant group of these states uh, that you can actually work with the way you would work with the breathwork or the way you would work with uh, psychedelics, when you can actually take people through these episodes and they turn out to be to be healing, and uh, the, uh, we started seeing them as crisis of spiritual opening, or, or you know, very radical effort of the psyche and the body to heal itself. Something that should be supported rather than suppressed. This is similar to what Dombrowski called the positive disintegration. Yes, yes, we had in the, I think it was in the, the early. Uh, late 60s or early 70s, we had actually a conference at Esalen, kind of a working conference, which was called The Value of Psychotic Experience, mm-hmm. with people like Dabrowski was there, uh-huh. uh, Fritz Perls was there, Alan Watts, John Perry, a Jungian analyst yes, who worked sir. with psychotic uh, 
so-called psychotic patient. Yeah, I knew John. He was a neighbor. And Julian Silverman, you know. I remember Julian, yes. Yeah. And they did uh, actually an Agnews project. At At St. Agnews Hospital. St. Agnews Hospital, where they compared a group of patients who would be treated uh, in the usual way to people who got placebo, actually, in these psychotic uh, states. And they found out that they were more of a problem during the hospitalization. But if they did the follow-up, the patients who were not treated by tranquilizers actually in the long run did much better than those who were put on tranquilizers and kept on maintenance dosages. I interviewed several times on this program, Stan, a man named Robert Whitaker, who has a book out called Anatomy of an Epidemic, in which he has uh, he's a very credible journalist, and he has a lot of data on the deleterious effects of the psychoactive medicines and how they are, instead of adjusting our neurotransmitters, are actually causing havoc with our neurotransmitters. And that's why he calls it an anatomy of an epidemic. Yeah, well, there's another, another problem there, which is the psychiatric therapy, so-called therapy, is now becoming increasingly suppression of symptoms. You're not looking into what is causing the symptoms, you know, trying to do some more etiological, uh, as it is called, an approach. Uh, and in the context of medicine, because psychiatry was developed uh, historically as a sub-specialty of medicine, in uh, somatic medicine, this would be a very bad practice to focus on suppression of symptoms. I was about like to if, say, if, I mean... If, if, if somebody comes with fever, you know, just put them on ice and be happy when the, when the temperature goes down. You want to know why the people have the fever and can you do something very radical about the underlying condition rather than just be satisfied with suppressing the symptoms. And it's becoming increasingly the, the routine approach in, in psychiatry, focusing on suppression of symptoms. What you're saying then is, given that the symptom is a message, which is what the symptom is, it's a message to us, from us, you're talking. You're saying that the the whole field of psychiatry, a great part of it, is going into suppression of information, suppression of the mess, the basic message. Yeah, you know, two days ago when there was this uh, launching of my new book in San Francisco, uh, Rick Doblin in his talk was referring to an article that he read about the crisis in in psychiatry and. That is certainly uh, happening uh, at this point, and it's moving more and more in this direction when we will just be, you know, suppressing uh, symptoms and not doing and not doing anything uh, anything more. Julie Holland uh, said on this program a few weeks ago that uh, 26 million women in the United States are on one antidepressant drug alone. That's a, yeah. a, a phenomenal number. So to a little more about the Spiritual Emergency Network and how it actually works. How can people get in touch if they have a friend or a relative, family member, uh, who is in a spiritual crisis? Tell us. You know, it had a very, very um, difficult, stormy history. Actually, the precursor of this was uh, the work of John Perry, who was a Jungian analyst, uh, and he developed two centers. One was called... uh, diabetes in uh, San Francisco. The other one was Chrysalis near uh, San Diego, where the people, and he preferred people in the first episodes of these non-ordinary states, 
uh, would go and they would not get tranquilizers. They would be allowed to go through the process, and uh, uh, John would uh, use Jungian analysis to try to integrate the the experiences. Now, when we developed the concept of uh, spiritual emergency that was at Esalen, uh, Christina started this Spiritual Emergency Network, or SEN, and uh, we got a lot of support from Dick Price, who was the co-founder of SLN, and he had three episodes of like this, and in two of them he was treated in the Institute of Living in uh, New Haven with electroshocks and, and insulin comas, and then uh, with the third one he decided to stay uh, near Esalen in a, in a log house and a friend of his was bringing him food, and he was able to, to work through that. And so he's very open to this alternative approach. And uh, he gave us a house and four work scholars, people who come to Esalen, and they pay much less than uh, the participants in the, in the workshops, but they have to work. You know, they have to work in the kitchen or clean the bath or the cabins and so mm-hmm. on. The work scholars. So we had two of these work scholars specifically focusing on the spiritual emergency network. So we had a computer, and these people were connecting people in need who were in spiritual crisis with people who could offer this alternative uh, approach, taking people through the crisis rather than uh, suppressing it. And then it became too big, and it uh, ended up in the California Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, uh-huh. And then from, from there, it went to California Institute of Integral Studies. There it got special, uh, you know, special rooms and, and uh, lines, telephone lines, and the computer was there, and there were funds uh, for running it. And then, of course, the economic crisis came, and the funds were cut for the school, and this was the most dispensable <laughs> program, so... It ended up in a situation where there was just one enthusiastic student who uh, was answering the uh, telephones and, and doing the referral service, but was not paid anything. And now um, two people from uh, the um, Holotropic Breathwork Network started something that's called Growth Foundation, uh, which is supporting the different things that we either initiated or or contributed to, and uh, Spiritual Emergency Network is part of it, Holotropic Breathwork, another one, you know, psychedelic research, yes, and so on. And so the first uh, project of this Growth Foundation is now, we are now financing uh, the Spiritual Emergency Network, and it's, uh, it's located at uh, CIS, California Institute of Integral Studies, so it's a kind of uh, renaissance or, you know, resurrection the major problems were always funds in these alternative approaches. Yes, to, always. Because the insurance companies would not honor it if it's an alternative approach. Yeah. Stan, Even we've got... One, one third excuse of me. what you pay normally, they would not support it. Stan, we've got just about two minutes left. Uh, could you make a few comments about the work of using LSD for scientific research, such as we've heard about uh, Sagan used it and Watson and Crick may have used it in the, in the, in the discovery of the double helix. Yeah, no, there's, uh, you know, vast literature now about the therapeutic uses, but there are, of course, other uses. And the most exciting is the one that you're mentioning, the, the effect on creativity. And I hope that 
that now, you know, after some of the basic research is returning with cancer patients and and uh, <clears throat> the new starting with the PTSD with people with the with the post traumatic uh, stress syndrome, I hope that we'll move into this realm of creativity because there are these uh, examples like Francis Crick admitted that. Uh, Taking LSD helped him to, to yes. crack the, uh, you know, the molecule of yes. the DNA. And there was uh, Curry Mullis who developed the, the polymerase uh, chain used in genetic engineering. And he was very explicit about it that he wouldn't have yes. discovered it without, uh, without uh, the help of LSD. I've got to cut you off there. I'm getting big signals here, Stan. Okay. I, I, I want to thank you so much. For, for the privilege of interviewing you today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I want to offer you my deepest condolences for the, for the loss of your, of your wonderful wife and partner, uh, Christina. And, uh, and hopefully, uh, if you should have the time, I would love to have you back on the program sometime in the future. Thank you very much, and I would certainly be happy to return. Good. And thank you all, our dear listeners for being part of today's broadcast with Dr. Stan Groff here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. This is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm.